It's like, no, I'm not going to the doctor because I, I don't go to the doctor anyway. Um, <laughs> Jeff Atkins, poster child for I mean, self care. Like, never mind. Hello and welcome to episode 44 of Major Revisions, a podcast about ecology and academia from the perspective of three early career environmental scientists. I'm Jeff Atkins from Virginia Commonwealth University, and with me as always are John Walter and Grace Wilkinson from Iowa State University. John, actually, what what designation should I give you now? I totally blank on this each time. Uh, I'm at UVA now, officially. (laughs) <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm only in one place now for the well. It, it's time kind in a of while. it's not like you're with UVA. You, you like you relapsed, right? You're back. Yeah, I yes. Better than ever. I returned. Yeah. They say you can never go home again. I I don't know if that's true <laughs> or not, but I think it's just I guess it's just a book. I don't think it really matters. Uh, guys, I had the weirdest thing happen. Um, I got poison ivy for the first time. Which really messed with my head because I've never gotten it, right? Like, even, like, I used to teach wilderness survival at summer camp when I was a teenager. And I would always, like, point out what poison ivy was to like, the kids and be like, don't do this. And I would jump in it and, like, roll around, do whatever. Never get it. Came back this summer. My house had went crazy over the summer because I'd been gone the whole time. And so I cleared out all the backyard. My wife had even tried to, like, clean out part of the backyard and got a really bad poison ivy. And I was like, well, I don't get it. I'll be fine. Dude, totally just trashed, man. Like, my legs were, like, bright red and purple. And it kept spreading. Like, it got bad. I ended up getting bumps, like, on parts of my body that never touched the poison ivy. Uh, I even tried Benadryl for the first time. Yeah. Have you all heard of this Benadryl stuff? Yeah. (laughs) Holy shit, man. Straight to sleep. I took like two Benadryl and had like um, pumpkin beer because one pumpkin beer is awesome. Dude, I slept for like thirteen hours. Like I could not wake up. Don't do that stuff, kids. It's really hard <laughs> I, stuff. I, I have to agree with you. I also recently did Benadryl for the first time for an extended period of time because I got sugars, <laughs> which are the freaking. Oh god. Worst. I wanted to end everything. I was done. <laughs> and like like I was cursing like a sailor every morning. I oh my goodness. It was so so awful. I don't know how people do this on a regular basis. So yes, that was the first time I tried the good stuff. Benadryl. <laughs> have, you, have any of you guys have ever gotten oak no. mites? What the, what's that? Okay, so oak mites are an invasive species from Asia that have a really patchy distribution, uh, in North America. Um, but their, uh, invaded, invaded range in North America included my yard in Lawrence, Kansas. So. Yeah! Every, every time I, you know, did yard work and stuff during the summer, I would get, these like really big itchy welts um on my arms from the oak mite bites um they're terrifying looking yeah i mean and they're like i mean you can't really 
see them. Like you don't see them. They're they're tiny. Um, I mean, if you know what you're wow. looking for, I'm sure you can see it. They're not microscopic, but um, they they're small enough that they're not apparent, and you just like end up with these awful, uh, awful welts on your arm that itch worse than like any other insect. See, gentlemen, I'm not going to lie. This is why I don't study the terrestrial environment because it is an itchy, itchy place. I prefer to spend my time in water. You worked in Wisconsin. (laughs) Yes. You would think that my histamine reaction would, and is actually still pretty good. I was up there this summer and (laughs) I haven't lost all of my, my histamine response to mosquitoes. Do you think, do you think that's it? Like, is it, okay, so this is, I'm curious, like, how I lost this superpower. Is it because I've started spending more time in the Midwest, and so I've just been exposed to more mosquitoes? Or is it the fact that poison ivy is, you know, one of the biggest winners from, you know, increased uh, carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere? Or is it like a, you know, both kind of thing? Any thoughts on this? Because I, first of all, I was in denial that I had poison <laughs> ivy, so this is a big argument in my house. Um <laughs> It's like, no, I'm not going to the doctor, because I, I don't go to the doctor anyway. Um, <laughs> Jeff Atkins, poster child for I mean, self-care. Like, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so, like, I was in denial that it was poison ivy, but at a point it became fairly <laughs> obvious, right? Like, you can't deny for so long. But what do you all think? Like, what's going on here? Like, how did this happen? I, it could be any of the above. I don't know. There was there's actually a really good NPR sto- story on about this recently, so I'm going to try to find that and send it to you. But the main takeaway was it was someone that was studying poison ivy, and this researcher was talking about how they can't even identify poison ivy sometimes anymore because the morphology is changing so much and evolving. It it is much darker in color than it used to be. Um, so I don't know if I have a particularly virulent strand of poison uh, ivy in my possible. yard or not. I'm not sure. It's it's all gone now because I killed it all. And then I took the aerosol or whatever the stuff is that's on it and apparently just rubbed it all over my skin. Life is eight for um, the win. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it was much fun as it's been talking about dermatitis. Well, <laughs> and it is. Don't get me wrong. So, what are we actually talking about today, guys? Um, so there were some rule changes that happened, um, and solicitation changes that happened at NSF recently in the past couple of weeks. And this has caused, I would say, fairly a lot of conversation and perhaps some confusion and some aggravation. So I think we decided to talk about NSF and what it is and how grants work. Yeah, definitely, because there's a lot of lingo that kind of surrounds, you know, federal granting institutions. And at least to me, like, uh, you know, learning this at, at first and, and still learning it now, like, it seems very impenetrable. Um, and also, as I'm looking particularly to you, John and Grace, as very successful grant writers, and at occasional points maybe not so successful, but generally successful grant writers, you all have went through this process and we're going to talk about it today, and I'm really excited about that. So, first of all, like, because I think you know uh, we have a very mixed audience, and so some people will have some background in this. 
but General uh, Grace, how how is like the National Science Foundation the NSF structured as far as you know as, as scientists? Yeah, how this has confused me for years. So. Here it is. There is, of course, the overarching general director of the National Science Foundation, but under that, there are seven directorates. So, for example, one of those directorates and the one that probably we interact with very often is the Directorate for Biological Sciences. Then under each directorate, there are divisions. Um, and those divisions, for example, the Division of Environmental Biology, that's the one where these changes that we alluded to have happened um, probably one that if you're an ecologist, you're interacting with a lot. And then under each division, there are clusters. For example, ecosystem science, that's the one that I've worked with the most. And those clusters are run by program officers. So program officers are actually the people that you're interacting with at NSF. They're the people who are making decisions about funding. They're the people who run panels. They are the people who should become your best friends. And I think I'm going to say this about 10 more times in this episode, but get to know a program officer. <laughs> And and who who are program officers? Like, how do you? How yeah, do you so program them? officers are actual scientists, people who are doing science, and what they have a um, short rotation, usually two or perhaps it's three. I thought it was two years at NSF, and they're there making decisions for their community in this role as program officers. So they're actual active scientists that are either academics or perhaps they work for some uh, doing science in some other form, but usually from uh, universities and they're serving for a few short years as program officers. So that's really cool and somewhat unique to NSF in that these program officers are actually people who have gone after these sorts of grants before and interacted with NSF and know what it's like to both be on the trying to put in a proposal side and now on the awarding proposal side. Yeah, and they're friends too. They're very friendly people, typically, at least in my experience. Yeah, um, the, at least in population and community ecology, there are a few program officers who um, I think are, you know, kind of based out of NSF and and um, you know not on rotation. Um, but a lot of them, a lot of them are. Um, a lot of them are, you know, people that you would probably recognize from reading their papers. Exactly. Um, and then the program officers are the ones who create the panels and those are panels are populated with people like us and other academics and other, um, government scientists. And they're the people who are actually making the recommendations to the program officers for funding. And typically panels, um, correct me if I'm wrong on here are usually are a lot of times often populated with people who have been funded in fairly recent cycles beforehand, um, correct? I I think not necessarily. Not necessarily. Um, certainly, I think there are people who have some skin in the game in the terms of they've either been around science for a while or they've published a lot or whatnot. But I think program officers are really looking to balance. First of all, they, they see this suite of proposals in front of them and they want to make sure they have expertise in the panel that can address some of those things. Um, and they're also really, really good. Program officers are fantastic at thinking about diversity, and they're trying to make sure that there's a diverse set of voices on the panel, including things like gender, career stage, career path, uh, representation from around the United States, you name it. There are so many dimensions to this. Um, so I don't think it necessarily has to be someone who's most who's recently getting funding. For example, I have served on a panel, and I did not have NSF funding prior to that. Okay. So. Interesting. Okay. What was your What was your experience serving on a panel? Was it pretty positive experience. You find you probably learned a lot more. About oh my goodness. Goes yes. It was, well. 
um, a ton of work, but it was a fantastic experience. Like you said, I learned a lot about what goes into a proposal, what I thought were good and bad things. When I was writing my own proposals, listening to the panel discussions, I thought, oh, wow, I never would have thought of that, or I didn't think that would come up. Um, so it was just a really fantastic learning experience. And if it's something that any of you are interested in, um, here we go. Number two, talk to a program officer. Um, the way that they do their panels is through networking, usually. And so get on their lists. They might start you off on like a GRFP panel if you're more early career. So that's a graduate research fellowship program panel. Um, but you will get put onto those panels. And the way to do that is to talk to a program officer, send them a two page CV, let them know what you're an expert in, but also be warned. It is a crap ton of work. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. Well, everything is, but, 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 but oh. rewarding, you know, I, I've heard that advice. Um, I haven't served on a panel personally, but I've heard that advice from uh, a number of people who are successful, uh, grant writers. Yeah, so there are also a bunch of different types of proposals that go before the panels. And so what are some of those guys? Well, there's, there's Eagers. Um, that's the one I'm most familiar with as well. John, Grace, what, John, why don't you tell us about what the Eager is? Uh, so, gosh, I should know what the acronym stands for. Um, but early grants for exploratory boom. research. Thanks, Jeff. Um, so kind of as I'm helping you out. So. As that implies, um, these are sort of, you know, higher risk, higher reward, uh, potentially high reward um, proposals um, and funding rates uh, are typically much better than standard proposals. Um, but uh, there are a few strings attached attached. Um, they're a little bit shorter. They're two years um, instead of the, the typical three. Uh, their budgets are capped at $300,000, um, and, uh, kind of unlike your standard grant where, um, the, the calls are very broad, um, and, you know, notwithstanding times when there are rules changes, you can kind of anticipate when, uh, you know, a call is going to go out and a due date is going to occur, Although now we don't have due dates in, uh, in DEB, um, which I guess we'll probably talk about more later. Um, you know, eager calls, uh, are a little bit irregular. Um, they usually are short turnaround times and they typically deal with, um, relatively, you know, specific areas that NSF, um, or, you know, some, uh, branch of NSF has, uh, determine our priority areas for, um, you know, for, for research that they want to fund. Um, and so you, you know, might have uh, a couple months turnaround between, uh, the dear colleague letter coming out, um, and, uh, and when grants are due for that call. Um, <laughs> and a few less weeks if it took a while for you to notice the dear colleague letter and <laughs> like what happened to us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, and the cool things about eagers, they, they can come in those dear colleague letters. So those are special solicitations. You can also approach a program officer about them independent of a call. Um, and, but they don't go in front of panels, right? Oh, they, they don't. 
No, they are they're funded. Are they funded typically yes, straight from the program officers? Like consultation with other program officers. Okay. Uh, which is similar to Rapids. So, okay. what are Rapids? Uh, Rapids are the uh, rapid response research grads. Um, Crants. I don't know how they get the rapid acronym out of that unless it's just rapid from the rapid response part. Um, but these are typically fairly small amounts of money, um, and they can be applied for at any point. But they're typically targeted towards, um, like, if there's some type of, you know, major cataclysmic or not a cataclysmic event, but like a you know something that necessitates like, hey, we got to move these resources very quickly to understand this phenomenon that happened or this disturbance or something. Like the um, uh, UVA group I was a part of uh, got funding after a big forest fire in Shenandoah National Park, and you know there had not been a forest fire in Shenandoah National Park really of any size ever, and so the that rapid was used to look at you know mercury transport and soil organic matter following this you know, disturbance. There was some rapid funding following fires and out West and also following, you know, some other stuff in the East. So they're typically focused around some type of, um, discrete event or reason necessarily to do that. So it allows NSF a vehicle to get something out when it's needed kind of quickly, if there's, you know, a reason or a merit, but they're a little bit looser from the cuff kind of things. Yeah, another example of a situation um, that that I know of resulting in a uh, successful rapid proposal was uh, an a um, insect invasion moving into uh, a new a new oh, area. Cool. I mean, sucks for the area, yeah. but cool opportunity. <laughs> right, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, <clears throat> yeah. But so if there's something you know that comes up really, you know, can, yeah. But it's not. They're typically not. You know. They're very, sometimes they're limited to like a year or just something to mobilize something very quickly, right. but it can be really useful. So then there's other types of grants like so, RCNs, which are research coordination networks or SGs, small grants. And those are usually for like workshops or meetings. And I think those typically go in front of a panel, um, but maybe they don't have to. It might be at the discretion of the program officer. That's unclear to me, but I know they do get reviewed at panels many times, but those are again... Yeah. RCNs do, I think, for sure. Cause they're typically a fair amount of money. They're, they're interesting. They're, they're weirdly structured. They're basically the funding for that is for collaborative purposes only. And so like the RCN that I'm a part of, like all the money goes really just to get scientists to places. Like it doesn't fund research. It's just collaboration necessarily, but they're really powerful vehicles for typically for like emerging fields or convergent fields or something, but. Really, really interesting. They're typically run by like a very senior person and um, can be fairly long standing, but really cool little vehicles too. I think with small grants, um, there's sort of a dollar amount threshold. Um, and, you know, don't, don't take this as gospel, but I think it's around $75,000 that if the grant um, budget is, is smaller than that, um, it probably won't go before a panel that... Um, It'll just be reviewed internally by program officers, and um, they'll make a decision on it. Um, but if it is above that threshold, uh, that then it needs to go um, right. in front of the No, I, I think I've heard that as well. I think that 75 sounds familiar. And yet another opportunity to say, hey, talk to your program officer, because they'll let you know based on your budget. That's time number three. Exactly. Do you have your, do you have your program <laughs> you officer on speed dial? 
Um, I know personally a program officer, uh, so every time I, I see this person, there are usually a few questions about what's going on at NSF and, um, and what and do you find, but they expect that and they're excited to talk about it. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I think that, you know, um, uh, you know, this person, I, I don't know if this is official or not, but, but last time I spoke with her, uh, you know, she was thinking of extending her time at NSF, um, and, you know, found it really rewarding to, you know, to be there. Um, that's awesome. So, yeah. Um, so what other types of grants are out there? Well, yes. Grace, there's the golden ticket one. Uh, so careers are for, um, early career scientists that are in tenure track positions. They're five years and I believe capped at $500,000, um, which actually at the end of the day is not a ton of money. And we'll talk about why because of overhead when we talk about budgets. Um, Ugh. but the, the special thing about careers is they have to be a true integration of your research and your teaching and mentorship together. And it can't just be like, uh, I study like, so I'm going to teach aquatic ecology, right? It has to be an integration of that research and teaching together. <laughs> um, and they take a few extra things. You have to get a very supportive letter from your department chair, things like that. It actually has letters of recommendation as a part of it. Um, but these are fantastic grants. And I, I sort of jokingly refer to them as the golden ticket because many people see it as, wow, if I can get one of these careers, like I'm set, tenure, here I come. Um, of course, that's not the only requirement for getting tenure, but it certainly makes you feel a lot better. Um, so, yeah. And and a lot of this information, <laughs> I'll just take a second to plug. Um, NSF, I believe twice a year, runs a thing called the Grants Con- Conference. And I went to one of these a couple of years ago in Louisville. And it was so amazing. I learned all of this information about how NSF works. I interacted with program officers. I got to ask all of my what I felt were stupid questions. Um, and the sneaky thing that they did is they knew they were all early career people. So they put the panel on career grants at the very end of the conference. So we all had to stay. Uh, <laughs> they knew what we were there for. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Um. A bit of a digression, but, uh, you know, I just want to jump in there, um, with, you know, advice about learning about NSF and, uh, you know, just, you know, grant writing in general and what kind of opportunities are out there in your field. Um, you know, find, you know, find a mentor who has been successful. Um, you know, you know, most people who are, you know, certainly post tenure faculty, um, at research institutions. So probably if you're, um, a grad student or a postdoc, your, um, your advisor or mentor, um, has had some degree of success, you know, ask them (laughs) to, you know, to, to talk about, um, you know, grant writing and the proposal process with you, you know, ask to see, um, successful and unsuccessful, um, proposals, um, and, you know, ask to see the whole, you know, the whole shebang, the whole package. Um, we're going to talk about some of the kind of ancillary documentation and, and budgets and stuff that that all, um, entails. Um, but yeah, you know, there's a lot that goes into it other than just the, you know, the proposal, um, the project summary, the project description, um, and, uh, you know, really, really, you know, dig in, um, if you are, um, a, you know, 
early, you know, an early career person, um, you know, looking to, um, make a postdoc for yourself, you know, find someone who, whose work you are, um, are interested in and inspired by and, um, you know, see if they're willing to, you know, to write a grant with you that would fund a postdoc for you. Um, I mean, these are all, you know, really, you know, kind of great ways to, um, you know, kind of learn about this process. And, um, you know, if, if you are lucky, um, have a little bit of success at it and, you know, get something that's awesome to, um, to put on your CV and, and can really help launch your career. Absolutely. I like it. I like it. Now, now that we're talking about hashtag trust the process, <laughs> let's, let's walk through what this journey looks like. So I'm going to, okay. I'm going to set y'all up a lot here because you know this and, and I want to learn how to do this now as, as somebody who's a part of writing their first real, like big, big time NSF grant personally. Here. So to clarify, we're talking about, you know, the kind of the grants that we're out that we just previously outlined. You know, we're not specific, we're not talking about like the GRFPs, those graduate fellowship type, uh, uh, uh grants. And we're not talking about the postdoc ones per se, but we're talking about like straight NSF yes. grants, like we just outlined, right? So yeah. Grace, you, you talked, you talked about the solicitation yeah. first. So the solicitation, the solicitation can come in the form of a, um, call for proposals that's put out, say, on an annual basis. And it's a very broad call for, say, the, the, um, Division DEB, um, Division of Environmental Biology. So that's, that's one possibility. Or they can be these more specific calls, like we mentioned the Dear Colleague letter earlier. Um, and so, but what comes with these is a, uh, information on what sort of science that they're looking for. That's super important. Read that about 10 times and make yourself a list, highlight keywords. Um, but then also there's all these other components that need to come with it. And so my recommendation, and this is something that actually, uh, group here at Iowa State called Grants Hub really helps us with is read that call and make yourself a checklist. Like there are just keywords that they're going to be searching for. For example, the um, grant that John and I recently put in, the Dear Colleague, it was in response to a Dear Colleague letter and they were specifically looking for um, science that had to do with using other people's data and that we were going to share with the community what using other people's data was like. And so I made sure I underlined that and we had a whole section about how it's appropriate for this solicitation and exactly how we were going to do that in response, right? And that's really important because especially if you imagine reviewers are reading a ton of these, don't make them search for it. (laughs) So really important to make sure you're checking all those boxes. Okay, John, question for you. The Grace is, is, and you as well, you both made the case for talking to the program officer. But like in the journey from, you know, reading that solicitation until you're, you know, making that paper and popping those bottles. When do you, when do you first talking to that program officer? Like when does, when do you approach them? Yes. How does that? Um, so the, the time usually, um, that, that I have, um, approached a, a program officer or, you know, people in, uh, leading the grant that I was, uh, collaborating on have approached a program officer is, you know, at the stage when we have an idea and, you know, the idea is well formed enough that we can, you know, basically say, you know, this is what we're interested in doing. Is this a good fit for this program um, or not? 
And, um, when, you know, when we're kind of advanced enough that we can, um, have, you know, a few questions for the program officer about, uh, our, our proposal, uh, it might be a little bit, you know, sciencey. It might also be, you know, just some of the nuts and bolts of, um, you know, putting together our, um, application and making sure that, um, it, you know, fits whatever, um, requirements and specifications there are on that program. Uh, probably the way to do it, uh, is to, um, you know, send an email, um, asking to set up a phone call. Uh, it seems like that is, um, you know, the, the best use of the program officer's time. Um, so you can, you know, on the phone, you can have, a you know, a little bit of back and forth and a more qu- quickly and, and easily, um, than you typically can just emailing back and forth. Um, but it, it's respectful of their time to, you know, ask to set up a meeting, um, you know, usually cold calling them, uh, on the first <laughs> try is not, uh, the, you know, the most respectful thing that you can do, um, to them. Uh, although sometimes you have to, if you can't get, uh, the information, uh, that you need, um, or have difficulty getting a response, um, to an email, uh, program officers are really busy, uh, and, uh, especially around the time where a lot of people are submitting proposals. And so sometimes, uh, you know, things do kind of slip through the cracks. Occasionally. Absolutely. One thing I would add to that is maybe when you send that initial email requesting the phone call, have a one page summary of your grant attached to that email. Cause that's going to give them something to glance at and they might actually have questions and like say, that. Oh, this part is particularly interesting to me, or I think this would fit really well. And they might actually have some feedback on your science in addition to the logistics. Exactly. Cause like we said before, you know, the vast majority of program officers are, um, you know, our PhD level practicing scientists. That's really cool. I like that. It gives you, you know, kind of like a common starting point to go from. That's really, really good idea. Okay. So, so you've had, you've got the solicitation. You kind of have an idea what's going on. Maybe you talk to the program officer at this point and you're starting to put together a proposal package. Um, right. Cause the proposal is not just, I mean, it's a pretty honking big piece of, of work, right? So. A proposal, I guess it, it kind of starts first with you have to outline the intellectual merit of what you're doing, right? Grace, what is yeah? What is so intellectual merit, merit is one of the two really? criteria that are used to evaluate your proposal by the panel and the program officers. And intellectual merit okay. is um, so this is like what is on the reviewer sheet. Discuss this. They the panel will discuss the specific intellectual strengths and weaknesses of your evaluation. So this is the science. Are you doing the science? Are you doing it well? Are you asking compelling questions? Is this going to move the field forward? Often a word that's used at NSF, I think, is transformative. So how is this not just going to incrementally push us forward, but how might this transform the field, this research, and therefore is worthy of funding? So that's that's that intellectual merit component. And then the second criteria is, uh, is your broader impacts. Um, and 
broader impacts, uh, you know, is, it, it can be on a number of things. Um, it can involve, um, science communication. It can involve, um, advancing, you know, representation of underrepresented groups in, in science. Um, and a combination of, uh, of a, a lot of different things. Um, I guess in the past, you know, this kind of focused a lot on, uh, or at least it was often sufficient to, you know, mentor graduate students and undergraduates. Um, but it's, uh, become something that, that NSF does take, uh, take very seriously. And so, um, something that, uh, you, anyone that's submitting a proposal to NSF needs to um, give some real thought to. Yeah, absolutely. And I think part of that real thought is also demonstrating that um, let's say you propose that you're going to train um, high school teachers and then you're going to work with them to develop curriculum for their classrooms, then you better put in your budget summer pay for that high school teacher and maybe how you're going to work with your school's institution, your center for excellence in teaching or whatnot to develop the assessment for that curriculum that you're developing, right? Like that, because you really have to do your broader impacts. And if you put those line items in your budget and those things, and you have that infrastructure, I think it signals to everyone, the reviewers, program officers, that you're actually serious about it and you've thought about it. Okay, so so question for you on... On both of these, I want to go back to intellectual merit first. Yeah. What do you think is the biggest mistake there? Like, what's the real wrong way to do that? Hmm. I feel like that's a less obvious one because broader impacts, I feel like, is really <laughs> easy to screw up. But like intellectual merit, like, where do you where do you see that as being? Where do you see the pitfall? Um, I guess reason? one thing that I would say, and it, I would put this with the biggest caveat of this is my limited experience and who I am as an early career scientist. But I guess I would say if you don't clearly outline what the knowledge gap is that your proposal is attempting to fill, if you don't really do work hard to build the scaffolding of that and therefore make it exciting, you know, imagine you're reading someone's proposal and they are drawing this wonderful picture of the knowledge gap. And so by the end of that, you're just screaming, oh my gosh, someone has to ask this question. Someone has to do this. And then you propose to do that. That's really exciting and compelling. And that's easy to make the case that this is going to be transformative research. So if you don't spend a lot of time really making sure your knowledge gap is very clearly stated, then that can make it really hard to make the case for intellectual merit. Okay. So follow-up question. I have lots of questions. Hey, can I yeah. just jump so, in real quick? No, hell yes, you can. Uh, yeah, so I really like, you know, jumping off of that. Um, I think one thing that is important to know is that, you know, your panel is going to be in your field broadly. Um, and, and so I think one place where intellectual merit can go really awry is... Um, not treating your, not, not talking to the right audience. You know, you're not talking to, um, you know, any educated lay person. You're also not talking to the other five people who do exactly what you do using the same <laughs> tools that you use. Uh, you know, and, and, and so 
kind of getting you know, getting the audience right, I think, is really important, and, and pitching that level where you know someone who um, you know is knowledgeable in your field, but maybe is not in certainly not expected to be in your you know sub 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 field. Um, you know, get getting that getting that pitch right um, and that level of um, expected background knowledge um, as you're you know establishing your knowledge gap and um, you know expounding on how you're going to address that important question. Uh, I, I that's that's really critical. That's a fantastic point. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it really is. I think it's. I think that also goes to a lot of people who give talks to yes. other departments too, but that's a good point in general. It's an underappreciated aspect, I think, of science communication. This is my quick aside is that we also talk about this whole idea of like psychom is like we're always talking to the public, but also we got to talk to each other. But anyway, um, broader impacts. Um, I think Grace, you especially mentioned that you actually have to do these. And I think this is the, you know, and kind of my tangential experience been the place that a lot of people yeah. have fallen in. Where do you think the, either of you think the biggest pitfalls are there as far as broader impacts? Is it just being boring? Is it just not really thinking like through, like where's, where's the pitfall here? Or just common mistakes. Well, I think, I mean, I think Grace identified a good one. Um, I think another way to kind of signal your seriousness about broader impacts, um, you know, above and, you know, beyond budgeting for the things that you need, um, is that if you are not an expert on broader impacts, there's probably someone in your institution and in your, you know, circle of, um, of colleagues who is, and, you know, you know, tap those people, get them involved, you know, work with existing programs that have an infrastructure and, um, you know, people dedicated to them and really know what they're doing whether you want to do, you know, some science communication, whether you want to, you know, work with students from underrepresented groups, you know, um, you know, any, any of the above, um, you know, seek out the people that, uh, that know how to do it, um, and are passionate about it. If, especially if you are not the person who has a lot of experience with this, um, and, um, you know, and, and use them as resources, you know, get them items in your budget so that, uh, they are, you know, receiving, uh, what they need to do the kind of work. Um, but, but yeah, you know, don't, don't think that it has to be, you know, just you and that you need to come up with this crazy idea and implement it, uh, you know, perfectly. Um, yeah, tap, tap expertise as much as you can. Um, John, you bring up a really good point. This is something I picked up at ESA, um, was talking to, to various folks of, you know, like actual like content creators, I think was the term that I heard a lot and about how you can write that into NSF, like, uh, impact media lab and, uh, and Kika tough gave a talk as part of like a neon or one of these, um, you know, ignite sessions about 
integrating, you know, artists, communicators, documentarians, like whatnot into a grant. Like say you wanted to write making a small documentary into a grant that you had funded and then really that just ended up being you and two other people with a bunch of GoPros in the woods wandering around running into trees. Like that may not be the most effective way to do that necessarily. <laughs> no one I know would do that. But you could actually get like real people in there and get them as part of the, the grant. So glad glad that was mentioned. That's good. But you guys bring up a good point, and that's the budget and paying for all this. But there's one gigantic elephant in the room. And let me tell you, when I learned about this as a grad student, it blew my fucking mind. <laughs> what oh, that is was overhead? the way that UVA pays the, uh, to paint the trim every spring white at Mr. Jefferson's University. <laughs> Don't forget plant animals in every flower bed at least three times a year. U- UVA's overhead no. is honestly not that bad. Are you serious? Comparatively. Well, what is it now? Uh, it was 54%. It's, I think it's around 60 now. So, that's not what bad. overhead is, is for every dollar that you're asking for, and is that this percentage is the amount that, um, the university is gonna take. And they're taking it Right, but you want to know what it's going to pay for, like, keeping the lights on in your lab, making sure that if your university has a fleet of vehicles, that they're paying insurance on them and do the oil changes, that the people who do payroll for the people that you're hiring for on this grant get paid, right? So it goes to do all of that administrative stuff so that you don't have to do it. All right. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm joking, I'm joking totally, but this is, like, oh, a hugely yeah. important, you know, important thing. Like, I make light of it, but yeah, it's like, you know, you pay taxes, you pay taxes also because you have roads and you have fire departments and stuff, right? Like, it literally keeps the lights on, like you said, Grace. But it's a lot, and it's but, painful um, when you have a dollar limit, like, say, $300,000 for an yeah. eager grant, and you know that 60% of that you're never gonna see. So, really. Yeah. You're starting out with right. 130 or. <laughs> And that's um right there. That's a postdoc. <laughs> yeah. That's it. That's your grant. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Good luck. Um yes, which kind of gets Welcome to, to how PIs pay themselves. Um how how do they pay themselves? I just thought like do they do you go straight to NSF to get the bags of cash or do they deliver them to you? <laughs> yes, I actually have a courier service. Um I'm fancy like that. Um, yeah, no, so the PIs can write and should write into the grant, um, money to pay themselves. Usually this is summer salary. So if you see a professor and you're chatting with them and they look pretty sad over the summer, maybe they're not getting paid summer salary. Um, but yeah. Yeah. If you don't know, most, uh, tenure track faculty are on nine or 10 month contracts and, uh, use grants to pay for their salary during the, you know, remaining two or three months. And hopefully your university is cool. Thank you, Iowa State. And they make sure that they find a way to still make sure your health insurance goes that whole time. Um, but you have to come up with, yeah, those intervening summer months. And hey, you're going to be working on this project and you should get paid for the time that you're putting towards that. So that's where the summary salary comes in. So you actually write in money to pay yourself. Whether as a PI, a co-PI, a postdoc, whatever. Okay, so um, besides the the overhead thing, um, 
Is there any just like non-obvious things that became apparent like when putting this together? Maybe the first time or, or just tricks that you've learned now? Like, Is there just something surprising about budgeting in general? Uh, fringe benefits are a lot yes. more costly than you think they are. <laughs> oh boy, yeah, they are. Uh, so what what does that what does that mean specifically? What are you referring to? Uh, I mean, this is the the amount that does not go to salary, um, but is associated with personnel. Um, it goes to the university to pay for you know things like healthcare, um, retirement benefits if your position comes with that, um, those types of things. And it's usually yeah assessed as a percentage yeah. on your salary. So, and that that's determined typically by your university Correct. or your institution, right? Yes, and you know people at different ranks have different rates um, and all kinds of fun things that um, you know make it kind of complicated to to figure out. So this is where your internal um, grants office, whether that's a kind of centralized university thing um, where some universities have a uh, have sort of grants personnel um, that are located within particular departments. Uh, those people are extremely helpful uh, when it comes to um, helping to put together a budget and making sure everyone um, gets paid the right amount and that your benefits calculations are correct yeah. and things like that. All right. Okay, cool. Mm -hmm. So I've got my proposal, right? I got my intellectual merit. Um, I had the budget laid out. I'm making a sweet documentary and educating high school students that are teachers at the same time. Literally, I think like a like hundred people <laughs> were scribbling when you were saying that, Grace. It's an amazing idea. <laughs> um, now I got to do a data management plan. So basically all I need to do is just say, I'm going to do it in Excel and then. Exactly. No, John is a rock star at this. So he should definitely take this one. Yeah, what's a data management plan? Uh, so a data management plan is, um, I mean, it's it's a written um, document that explains how you are going to uh, first, you know, s store the the data that you collect um, as part of your project, um, and uh, and also disseminate that, and so that might be original um field data that you that you generate um <clears throat> or it might be uh like in a lot of the proposals i've been a part of uh code and models and statistical methods um and uh so you know nsf um uh, rightly is you know is very serious about having um plans that uh you know both uh, protect the integrity of your data. Um, most of us in ecology probably don't deal with, uh, you know, sensitive um, information uh, about, you know, human subjects, uh, like uh, is often dealt with in medicine. Um, but certainly, you know, care needs to be uh, taken to ensure that um, data are being um, stored uh, in, in formats that uh, can be, you know, readily retrieved, um, and, you know, backed up properly and, and things of that nature. Um, and then, you know, NSF, uh, you know, takes very seriously, um, dissemination of data, you know, in, in this day and age, it's, it's not sufficient to say, 
you know, yeah, you know, we'll, um, you know, send these data out, uh, by request, uh, you know, no, <laughs> you, you know, you need to, um, you know, put your, your data, um, and your code in, uh, in a repository, um, that is, um, publicly accessible, um, possibly with, you know, some kind of embargo to allow for, um, publication, uh, and, and, and things like that. Um, and it, you know, it needs to be, you know, basically, you know, stored and maintained, um, indefinitely, uh, so that other, um, researchers can, you know, can access it and, and build on it. Right. Because these are public dollars that are funding that. So if you don't think that other researchers should at some point exactly. have access to that, you're wrong. Um, and I, Yeah. Yeah, there's um. Oh, I was just oh, going to say one thing that no, I took no, away from um uh, the panel that I had served on was that I didn't know this, but they have started explicitly making reviewing the data management plans part of the panel review. And your review that you get back is going to say whether it was good or bad and why it was good or bad. So it's not. So it used to get just like one of those new things. It was being brought on. People were getting used to it. I think a lot of people blew it off. Now it is a part of the decision. So don't blow it off. Um, good resources for data management plans yes. are your libraries. Uh, a lot yeah, of totally. institutions, um, you know, take this, you know, very seriously. Um, and librarians, uh, have resources often. Um, you probably have a data librarian in your institution, whether or not you know about him or her. Um, and they're, they're a great resource, um, for, for working on DMPs. Not a hundred percent sure VCU has one. Yes. I know UVA does. They're really good. UVA, I think. has. Um, has okay. So few, I've but... taken pictures. Yeah. They have really good ones. All right. So now I've taken pictures of my data sheets <laughs> and uploaded them to microfish. So perfect. That's how I do my data management. Only that and they're only available via courier mail. Um, <laughs> So if this is a large enough grant, sometimes you're going to have a postdoc mentoring plan in there. Do you all want to talk about uh, I guess I'll just briefly say it's one of those topics. It's or... one of those papers that you might not be expecting. But if you have any funds for a postdoc on your grant, just regardless of what type of grant it is, you have to have a postdoc mentoring plan. And again, that's another thing that your university can usually really help you with. Um, and, but it needs to actually be a plan for how that postdoc is going to be mentored and whatever their future career goals are. And I guess, John, you also have some experience with these. I do. Um, one thing that seems to go over pretty well is um, to, uh, you know, set sort of like a formal, um, you know, plan for, um, you know, communicating about, uh, you know, the postdocs career plans and goals, um, you know, talking about, you know, sort of strengths and weaknesses that, um, they want to, um, augment or improve on, uh, and, you know, sort of regular, um, check-ins and reviews of, uh, performance and, and progress in the project. So, um, a lot of the, you know, the, the postdoc mentoring plans that, that I've, um, you know, written or, you know, participated in as the postdoc, um, you know, for, uh, describing how I want to be mentored. I'm not saying you wrote your own necessarily. Uh, no, I, I did. (laughs) 
Um, or, or I have at least, at least the first draft of it. Um, I'm sure mine is good. I don't remember actually ever reading mine. I didn't read it. So. Uh, so the, the other thing that, that's, um, that's an important part of those is you're sort of like, what resources, um, are available at, in, you know, in that lab and at that institution, um, to support the postdocs, uh, career. And, you know, John, you brought up an important point when you're talking about milestones and checking okay. in and things like that. I think in any parts of these plans, whether it's broader impacts, data management plan, postdoc mentoring plan, having ways that, um, you have purposely included assessment and evaluation along the way is seen as very positive. Um, Facilities and current and pending support, and these are kind of the final two portions of the proposal package. What is what do you what do you mean by um like what goes into the facilities part? Is that just like outlining where the research is going to go and making sure that permitting and everything is done? That's definitely a part of it. Um, also, demonstrating that let's say you're proposing to do um, some really cool new research in genomic sequencing and things that you have access to those sorts of facilities or you have them in your lab so that the work that you're proposing to do with the budget that you have, you can actually get done because you have access to it. And again, if you're going to do this at like a facility, um, like we have a lot of biotech facilities on the ISU campus, those facility managers will help you write that chunk of your grant. It takes a village is probably one of the messages you're getting here. Definitely. Okay. And, and so is current and pending support then, is that just more of, is that just specifically financial that you refer, that's referred to in that section? Yes. So this is where you talk about what current grants that you have that are supporting your time and pending what ones you have submitted, including the one that you're submitting. Um, so also that the reviewers can see how your time is being split up and are you maybe proposing to do something that's going to take a hundred percent of your time, but you have five other projects that are already funded too. So oof, that doesn't make a lot of sense. All right, so proposal package then. That pretty much sum it up. Is there anything that you guys would want to add? or? I don't think so. Um, I guess at that point is when you submit it, and that goes through your university. And then the one thing I would notice that your university probably has a process where they essentially pre-audit your whole proposal, particularly the budget. So if you're going to do a proposal, you don't want to be talking to those people and the people who help you submit it like five days before it's due. You want to talk to them like five weeks before it's due. <laughs> if you can. Okay. So inherent in a lot of this is, is kind of the planning and constantly talking to a lot of people then. So just a question before you get to submission, how long would you say from start to finish this process takes just a rough estimate. Um, I mean, the, there's is it just three times as much as you initially think, or is it more like 10 times? Is it like six weeks? Is it, um, I mean, so the, the shortest I have ever successfully submitted a, like a grant of this scope um, we started working on it about a month before the due date. Okay. Um, and, you know, and, and some things where we've, you know, known, um, where the due date is well ahead of time. Uh, you know, we've been at least working on sort of like the science end of things for, um, you know, a, f- a few weeks, um, 
in terms of, you know, developing ideas and, and things like that and making, making sure that we have, uh, a concept that can, you know, support a competitive proposal. Uh, and then, you know, it's probably, you know, th- at least, you know, three weeks, um, to a, m- a month or more that we're kind of in the weeds of pulling together documents, um, not only sort of writing the grant proposal, but, you know, the data management plan, um, mentoring plans, uh, you know, facilities, current and pending support. Um, we, we didn't talk about it, but also, you know, a list of your, um, affiliations and conflicts yeah. of interest. So, you know, other scientists that you've worked with formerly, um, past, you know, mentors and, and, and things of that nature. Yeah, that seems like that takes a really long time to put together, actually, <laughs> like list out everything you've ever done and yeah, potential and, conflicts. Yeah. Um, you know, so, I mean, now that I've done this once, uh, it's a lot easier for me to just, you know, go ahead and update it um, and, you know, kind of continually update things as I apply for, uh, for more funding. Um, but definitely the, the first time uh, and any time there's a formatting yeah. change... <laughs> Uh, which, which happens, uh, not as infrequently as you might hope. Um, it does, you know, take, you know, at least, uh, a couple of hours of my time to, you know, to put yeah, together it's one not of these the fun documents. trip down memory lane that you think it's going to be. I, I would never think it was. <laughs> Maybe I'm more optimistic. <laughs> but I, I would say one thing about this, if you're thinking about putting together um, like an NSF proposal or whether it's for USDA or NIH, something of this caliber federal proposal, you for sure have some sort of either central or department specific granting office that can give you examples of all of these things. They can probably help write it. For example, at UVA, I go and talk to someone about my budget, or at ISU, sorry, what institution am I at? Um, I go and talk to someone about my budget and the next day they send me, um, um, draft budget and draft budget justification based on what we talked about. And you know, overhead. Who pays for that? <laughs> yes. Overhead. Overhead. I'm feeding the beast. Feed the beast, guys. This has gotten really. In, this has been really in depth and 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 in the weeds here. I like it. It's been very informative. But I think we may have to call this a cliffhanger now that we've gotten to the submission stage because we're already really well into this, and we still have a lot of other stuff to to do. Um, you want to do an NSF part two next week ish? Absolutely, we'll and part two. you know, I tweeted about this Ooh, right NS- before we started uh, recording, and we've gotten some good questions on Twitter. Um, mostly about the review process. So I say we pick those questions up when, when we talk again. All right. Yeah, totally. Keep them like coming. It. Cool. Yeah. So next week we're going to go through or in our next episode. We'll go through, you know, what are ad hoc reviews? Um, what does a panel actually look like? Um, what is a panel review process? Uh, you know, balancing the portfolio. I, I have a lot of more questions for you guys too. So I'm excited to see what the ones on Twitter are as well. Um, yeah. So with that, I guess thank everyone for listening. Remember you can find us on Apple podcasts, Google play stitcher and wherever other fine podcasts are available for free. You can email us at major revisions show at gmail.com. And I know I owe a couple of you replies. They're coming. And you can also find us on the interwebs at major revisions show. Dot com. Grace, John, do you have anything else you want to add? Talk to your program officer. Of course. They're very fine people. Do you, 
Do you guys either ever think that if you were if you were tapped to be a program officer, you would move to DC for three years, live the good life? I'd do it. Yeah, I, the the pause was DC, but yeah, <laughs> it is a swamp, you know. Well, I mean, you know, it may be in a better place. Hopefully, at that point, I don't. All know. All right. Maybe not. Until next time. Excellent. Thank you for listening. Listen to the sound of life. Of the day, wait for her, but don't upset. She'll go the other way. Winds will blow and storms will rage. News is always sad. Money tends to disappear.